This is an ABC podcast. Hi, I'm Tom Switzer, and this is Between the Lines. Well, US midterm elections are always a vote of confidence in incumbents. And this year's races for the US Congress and Senate, well, they were expected to inflict severe damage on Joe Biden's presidency. However, the conventional wisdom, and we've learnt this all too often in recent times, haven't we? That conventional wisdom is sometimes wrong. And it was this week when the Democrats did better than expected, while the Trump-backed Republican candidates, most of them at least, they did worse than expected. The upshot is that Republicans are likely to regain the House of Representatives, but only by a very narrow margin, and the Senate remains in limbo, despite predictions that the Republicans would win a comfortable majority. Nicole Hemmer is Associate Professor of History at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, and Nick Minchin was Australian Consul General in New York from 2013 to 2017. I spoke to them on Thursday morning in Australia. That's late Wednesday afternoon in the US. So, Nicole, these midterms were hardly akin to the red waves that smashed Bill Clinton's Democrats in 1994 or Barack Obama's Democrats in 2010. Why was this the case? What do you think happened? Well, it is a big surprise because it did seem coming into this, especially given the rate of inflation in the U.S., that, you know, there was going to be a shellacking for Joe Biden, just as there had been for Barack Obama. But I think there are a number of cross pressures on the electorate right now. I mean, one of the big ones is the Dobbs decision, that there were many voters who turned out to protect reproductive rights. We saw, I think, every ballot measure that uh, was on in several states to protect abortion rights passed. Um, you also have, you know, you had election deniers and conspiracy theorists on the ballots, and a lot of people didn't want to continue to go down that path. Um, and, you know, there are issues such as COVID protections or guns in schools or concerns about book bans. There are all of these things swirling around in politics right now. And I think that those really did work um, to tamp down some of the gains that we had expected last night. Okay, so the Supreme Court decision on abortion, the Trumpist election denies. I mean, these subjects really boosted Democratic turnout. They hurt the Republicans. Nick, your thoughts? Well, let's remember, uh, Tom, that in fact the Democrats have lost control of the Congress. Pretty clear the Republicans are going to win the House and I think stand a good chance of getting the Senate in the Georgia runoff. So it is a defeat for the Democrats and as an old political campaigner, you always take a win. It's certainly true that, you know, all the polling and the state of the US economy and, and having a senile um, president meant that everybody expected a very big uh, Republican um, wave, and that didn't happen. I think there's an issue that people will, uh, you know, look at the entrails of, of turnout. Uh, the, the trouble with campaigning, I've always wanted a campaign as the underdog. In this election, everybody was saying, oh, the Republicans are going to win easily. That could well have contributed to Democrat loyalists coming out very strongly, and Republican loyalists thinking, oh, it's in the bag, I don't need to bother voting. So I think that's an issue. Um, we always underestimate, too, with US elections, the enormous power of incumbency. It is very difficult to knock off incumbents, and we've seen that. And, and as part of that, it, it, as someone mentioned last night on the, the coverage, 
it's very hard for outsiders, uh, people have never run for, for office, um, etc., to win statewide ballots. And, and the candidacy of um, uh, Mr Oz in Pennsylvania was a classic case of that. He was up against Fetterman, who for all his faults was the lieutenant governor and was very well known, and Oz was someone from New Jersey. So, you know, that makes it extremely difficult. Um, Nicole mentioned, you know, the overturning of Roe versus Wade, and again, I think that's going to be interesting to analyse. Um, to what extent did that, A, mobilise younger voters who traditionally, you know, have low turnouts, that they come out, particularly younger women? And so did that issue, while not being a, real top of mind issue act as a break on what would have otherwise been a, a Republican wave. But the fact is, uh, Biden looks like being a lame duck president for the next two years. Now, Nick mentioned outsiders and those Republicans, especially many of those endorsed by Donald Trump, they did have a disappointing night, all things considered, a bad night for the MAGA crowd. And remember, this is despite widespread fears of inflation, cost of living pressures, Nicole, to what extent do the midterms hurt Trump in the eyes of Republican voters? Well, certainly in the short run, it is hurting Donald Trump. If you watched conservative media last night cover the results as, um, you know, the Florida votes came in and they felt really good. And then after that, things took a bit of a turn. Um, there was a real sense of recrimination against Donald Trump. Um, this idea that he had helped to back candidates who weren't ready for prime time, who weren't resonating with the electorate, um, who backed issues that didn't seem to resonate with the electorate. And it, it's it's hard to say that those recriminations are going to hold, um, but we know from reporting that Donald Trump was pretty upset last night, but we also know that he is planning to throw his hat into the ring for re-election within the next week or so. Um, so we'll see whether that plan changes because of what happened last night and also whether his decision to announce a run for president changes the narrative, but he definitely wanted last night to go very differently. He wanted to announce his presidential bid with this strong red wave behind him, and now he's going to have to pivot a little bit. Well, Nicole says a real sense of recriminations. Is this red ripple likely to discourage Trump from running again? Nick? <laughs> well, um, knowing Donald Trump, I'm not sure that anything would discourage him, but uh, clearly, look, it wasn't a good <laughs> night for Donald Trump and it was a fantastic night for um, DeSantis in Florida, an extraordinary result in Florida and uh, that's now very much a red state uh, under DeSantis. And that's an interesting facet of this, that, that incumbent governors who performed have done very well and, and DeSantis is one of those, Rick Abbott in Texas. I think there will be now uh, a lot of momentum within the Republican Party behind DeSantis uh, and, and that's going to be a problem for, for Donald Trump. And it's true, as we've just discussed, that you know several of the candidates um, he strongly endorsed uh, didn't do well. You know, the, the, the question is, what's 2024 going to look like? It's impossible to believe that Biden could run again given his state of mind now, to think that, you know, he'd be the candidate. So the, the Dems are going to, and this, that they have lost the Congress. So I, I, I think the Dems will be looking for an alternative to Biden. And I think that will also encourage the Republicans to move on to a younger, newer generation of candidate. Uh, so I, I think um, DeSantis will be strongly backed within the 
conservative movement, that may not discourage Trump and we may well have a contest. But I, I'd be putting my money on DeSantis being the Republican candidate in 2024. Okay, so Ron DeSantis, let's be clear, he's only 44, Yale graduate, Harvard Law School, uh, served in Iraq, married with three young children. He scored a near 20-point victory in this re-election as Florida governor. I mean, he really won nearly everywhere in the state and notably in Democratic strongholds. And DeSantis has credited his pandemic policies, stressing freedom over mandates and education over indoctrination. Nicole, presuming DeSantis runs for the Republican presidential nomination, how do you think things will play out for the Republicans And what about the Democrats, especially given Joe Biden's evident weaknesses and limitations at 80 years of age? It's a great question because you do have this choice on the Republican side. Is it time to move past Donald Trump, move to somebody who not just had this really big win last night, but who... uh, has adopted a number of Trumpian features, um, both in terms of his policies, but also in terms of his rhetoric, in terms of the way that he talks. He sometimes seems to be doing a Trump impersonation uh, when he's on the stump. He's somebody who could conceivably keep a lot of that MAGA base of the movement, um, but then also reach out to folks who are a little tired of Donald Trump. So he has a message coming out of this election for the nomination, and there are plenty of conservatives who are backing him. There's, I think, going to be a pretty bloody brawl on the Republican side between Trump and DeSantis, and we'll see how that plays out over the coming months. When it comes to Democrats, I mean, this is a critical question because, you know, if you look back at the big shellackings of the past, um, you know, Bill Clinton took it on the chin in the first midterm. So did Barack Obama. Uh, And they came back and they won re-election, both of them fairly easily. And so you would expect that the wins would be favorable for Joe Biden if he did run again. Um, But again, it's not just about the fundamentals. It's also about the person. And so if Joe Biden decides not to run, if he's not in shape to run again, then you have a very different situation for Democrats. It seems very unlikely that Vice President Kamala Harris would win the nomination. She's been not very visible. She doesn't have much of a constituency. And then it's really wide open. I mean, to talk about another governor who had a very good night last night, Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan is starting to gain quite a lot of presidential buzz um, coming out of last night's race. She has a now united government in Michigan. That state now has Democratic control across the board. Um, And so she also has a story to tell as a governor of a a state that's doing well, um, but also as somebody who was targeted by the far right and has come out of that situation with a story to tell as well. So I, I think, you know, if Joe Biden doesn't run, it is going to be a wide open race and it is pretty impossible to say what's going to happen in that situation. And what do you think, Nick Minchin? I, I would agree with um, Nicole on that analysis. As I say, I think DeSantis will have a lot of momentum behind him. And the, the trouble with a Trump presidency in 2024 is people will see it as him just wanting vengeance for all the people who mm-hmm. he believes, you know, caused him so much angst and and and, and losing the 2020 election. I, I think Nicole's right that the Democrats are going to look at their successful governors for a candidate in 2024, given I just do not see how you could possibly go with Joe Biden again. Now, Nicole, one thing is clear from these midterms, and that is that polarisation, 
the hyper-partisanship that has characterised US public discourse in recent years, that will remain defining features of Washington affairs. Why do you think this is the case? I mean, who's to blame here? Well, I think there are a lot of causes for why Americans are so divided these days. I mean, one of the big ones is a, is a historical change that over the past 30 or 40 years, the parties really have sorted by ideology. So they just believe very different things. And there are very few people within each party who overlap with the, um, with the beliefs and the politics of someone in the other party. So the parties are just divided because they believe different things. And in some ways, that's good. That means that voters get to pick between very, two very clear choices. Um, but it also leads to this very hyper-partisan environment that we're in. Um, we also have a media environment from uh, talk radio to cable news to social media that really does um, give an advantage to stories and personalities who are capable of stoking outrage and who are able to you know, suck up all the oxygen in the room. And that just leads to very different kinds of candidates. It leads to a very different tenor when it comes to politics. And then finally, you know, we're we're at a point in the United States, as many countries are, where we are thinking about some big core questions about what kind of government do we want to have? Do we want to have more people included in voting? Do we want to have fewer people? Do we want to have a more representative government? Do we want to rely more on counter-majoritarian institutions? Um, it just really is this moment where people are talking about core things like democracy. And that does make it feel as though the stakes are very high. And it's not just Democrats talking about democracy. I mean, people um, on both sides, Republicans and Democrats, um, a majority believe that democracy is in danger in the United States. And when something like that is the case, then you're going to see much higher stakes and much more heated rhetoric when it comes to elections. Now, Biden in 2020 won power in part by promising a moderate normal presidency. He said it was time to, quote, stop treating our opponents as our enemy. Yet he warns about democracy being in danger and he focuses only on Republicans. Nick, do the problems in America go beyond Trump and those Trump-like Republicans? Remember Trump in 2016, a response to a lot of the problems America was experiencing at that time. Obama eight years was a period, frankly, of considerable drift, particularly in foreign affairs and the economy and, um, you know, explosion in government debt, etc. So Trump was a, a natural response to that in terms of his agenda of the economy and getting America moving again. And, you know, to a great extent, his presidency was successful. I think he was brought down by the outbreak of COVID and the management of that, and uh, uh, it, it kind of put a, a, a dent on, on his presidency. But look, in terms of the US, I mean, I love America, and I think it's a, a fantastic country, and we dwell a bit too much on, oh, you know, all these problems in America. I mean, it has been a divided country for a very long time. They did have a civil war, after all. It's such a vast country. Um with enormous differences, you know, the, the east and west coast are so different to to middle America and the the, um, the heartland of America. So there will always be that kind of tension within the US, but it's a tension that has produced one of the greatest countries the world has ever seen, still the predominant 
economic power, the predominant innovative power in the in in a, and it's still a wonderful place. So let's not denigrate America too much and understand the tension that exists within the American body politic um, is part of the dynamism of that extraordinary country. Well, Robert Gates, Defence Secretary under Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama, and forgive my listeners for my repeating this quote, I'm just so fond of saying it, but he has said time and again, quote, the greatest national security threat to the US, this is Robert Gates, it's encompassed within the two square miles that involve the Capitol and the White House. Nicole, is he right? Yeah, look, he's not wrong. I mean, and there have been moments in the past several years where we have seen actual national security threats um, in that radius between those two buildings. Um, But, you know, dysfunction in government makes it much more difficult to respond to crises. Uh, Nick just mentioned the response to COVID in the U.S., which really was hampered by polarization, by um, a, a politics that made it very difficult to focus on technocratic public health medical responses um, and good information about a major public health crisis. And I think that we're seeing that across the board, whether you're talking about um, national security, whether you're talking about foreign policy, and whether you're talking about dealing with very real threats of domestic terror in the United States, politics and partisanship often get in the way of addressing those very real concerns. And Nick, given those bitterly deep divisions in the US, should allies like Australia, should we be worried about US staying power in our region to keep a check on China? Or are you more optimistic? Uh, Yes, I am. I mean, for all that the American body politic is divided, but the one thing that really has had and continues to have strong bipartisan support is foreign policy, particularly in relation to the Australian-American relationship, there is enormous um, and very strong bipartisanship uh, with respect to our relationship and I think with foreign policy generally. I mean, both uh, Democrats and Republicans recognise the greatest threat to uh, the US is the rise of China. That is a bipartisan position and both have strong positions uh, with respect to China and the rise of China and the threat that that does pose. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm very confident about the continuation of, of uh, and whether it's Democrats, Republicans, Biden, Trump, whoever, uh, of, a, of a very strong relationship um, with us. The, the, you know, the, the, the sort of concern we always have is a, a retreat by the US to a sort of isolationism, and, and isolationism is a, a little instinctive in the US. It took, um, you know, FDR a long time to get America into the Second World War. But I, I, given what I was just saying about the, the rise of China, I think the US will remain strongly engaged in the um, Indo-Pacific. So I, I'm confident that the US will remain engaged and will remain a powerful supporter of liberal democracies around the world. Well, that was the former Australian Consul General in New York, Nick Minchin, and US political historian Nicole Hemmer from Vanderbilt University in Nashville. Up next, the US-China tech war. 
Well, the economic competition between China and the US continues to escalate. What's called decoupling from the world's second largest economy, well, that's well underway. We saw a good example of this recently when the Biden administration imposed new restrictions on semiconductor exports to China. At the same time, Xi Jinping's regime wants to rely more heavily on homegrown suppliers. Now, the tech war, or decoupling as it's called, between the US and China, I don't think it's really attracted anywhere near as much attention, certainly not media attention, as the subject deserves. So to help us understand this full-blown economic war, as it's been described, let's turn to a relatively young Australian who spent most of her working career in America observing the deterioration of US-China relations. Alice Hahn is Director of China Research at Greenmantle. It's a US-based advisory group. A graduate from Harvard and Stanford Universities, Alice is in Australia as a scholar-in-residence at the Centre for Independent Studies. That's a Sydney-based public policy research organisation that I head. Alice, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me on the show, Tom. Now, before we address the US efforts to isolate Beijing's high-tech sector, let's deal with China's tech policy itself. Now, a lot of your research centres around China's tech ecosystems, both on the private sector innovation side and on the government regulation side of things. Simple first question, what, what on earth attracted you to this subject? Well, you know, my background being, you know, a Chinese... Uh ethnically Chinese person growing up in Australia, I'd always had this linguistic and cultural appreciation for China. When I went to Harvard, uh, that f formalized into an, an uh, interest in Chinese history, Chinese economic growth, uh, the different parts of the China model, so to speak. Uh, and then I uh, was lucky enough to do research for Neil Ferguson, who is a preeminent British historian. And past guest on this program. Correct. Uh, and and, and that, that relationship really helped me to develop an interest in, in analyzing Chinese technology, ways in which it has promoted Chinese innovation and growth, and ways in which the government is trying to use it, co-opt it, or even um, uh, curb it for its own purposes. Well, it's good timing. You've been studying this subject because we've seen crackdowns on Chinese tech companies like Alibaba over the past few years. Why do you think the Chinese government has been so forceful in cracking down on its tech success stories? I think if you look at the history of modern China, uh, post-reform and opening, really from the late 70s onwards, over the last four decades, uh, the Chinese government has this tension between control and innovation. For the mainstay of the last four decades, I would say it has been a story of a reform and opening of innovation, of liberalization. Uh, but what we've noticed uh, since uh, Xi Jinping came to power, the current president of China, uh, is that there's more attention paid towards this uh, control element of the Chinese DNA. By that, I mean trying to find ways to uh, control uh, in national data, control um, capital being put into particular sectors. Uh, the Chinese government considers social media gaming to be more speculative sectors that should not have more investment. And instead, they want to uh, funnel more investment and capital into what they consider strategic high-tech emerging technologies like semiconductors. And the Chinese Communist Party's uh, crackdown on China's tech success, is that likely to continue, do you think? Very much so. I, I think even after this 20th Party Congress, which happened uh, a few weeks ago, uh, and that's an important you know, five-year personnel uh, reshuffling that happens in China to change the people at the elite level in politics. 
even after that party congress, I would say that the impetus to control and crack down on, on technology companies will remain. And that's because they believe that these tech companies like Jack Ma's Alibaba mm. or Pony Ma's Tencent have gone too big for their breaches and they need to be put in line. Uh, they need to invest in certain areas. They need to be socially responsible and pay back to the communities as well. Well, well in this country, there's been a lot of debate about the risk of Chinese tech companies expanding overseas. Mm -hmm. Huawei, as you well know, is just one example. You just think of the Turnbull government's decision in 2018 to ban Huawei from entering the 5G digital network. There's also increasing debate about TikTok. Mm -hmm. So in your judgment, what's the likely future for Chinese tech companies that want to expand into foreign markets? It will basically, I would say, take the form of uh, a splinter net. I mean, that's a term that's been used quite a bit recently uh, to describe how there might be an US or Western-led internet. Uh, in addition to that, all the social media apps and, and uh, technology stacks that come with it, and then a Chinese-led one. And I think that in emerging markets where the Chinese prices are more affordable, and you certainly see this with 5G and Huawei, uh, they will decide to vote with their, 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 their pockets and basically choose the Chinese model as opposed to the American. So, so we'll so, have a West versus emerging markets. So it's like a, a new Cold War, but just on digital measures? Correct, yeah. <laughs> well, the US measures to restrict technology, they're on the highest end of semiconductor chips, but they also extend, Alice, to any advanced chips made with US equipment. So... Do you think Washington's attempt to deny China access to the absolute cutting edge of technology, do you think that makes sense? From the US vantage point completely, because they don't want China to catch up on the semiconductor yeah. race. Uh, and I mean, the, the key with semiconductors is it's like oil in the sense that it basically powers all high-tech equipment, all the electronics we see around us and use today. Mm. And so if they set China back on the uh, semiconductor front, that means that they you know, basically put them back on AI on, on telecommunications and a, ho a whole array of technologies. Yeah, I've never heard that expression before, that the semiconductor industry to the digital networks is a bit like oil to energy. It's interesting. I never thought of it like that. What about the hit to the Chinese economy? What are we expecting here? Yeah, um, it's not going to be seen in this year's uh, GDP or next year's GDP, but it definitely uh, makes it more difficult for the Chinese to rely on the kind of tech innovation to boost growth. I mean, we're already seeing a slowing Chinese economy, a realization that the old model of uh, fixed asset investment and debt fueled growth isn't working, and they're banking on technology, and, and the recent speech by Xi Jinping shows that. But the U.S. attempts to, to foil, uh, foil this will, will basically have devastating consequences. Yes. Well, this is Ed Luce, past guest on this program. He's in the Financial Times, quote, America is now pledged to do everything short of fighting an actual war to stop China's rise. And Ed Luz goes on to say, quote, America is now close to making regime change in China an implicit goal. Alice Hahn. I mean, they can talk that talk, but I frankly don't think they're going to walk that walk. We see the same kind of rhetoric in parts of the administration directed towards Russia, uh, led by Vladimir Putin. Fundamentally, I think a lot of American policymakers would like to see a regime change in both those countries. But the fact of the matter is that they have, especially with, with regards to China, very little in terms of resources to make that happen. And the Chinese people, if you look at any kind of metric of, of support uh, for the party, uh, that support has actually risen because of increasing fears of uh, Western uh, anti-China sentiment. 
Nevertheless, in Washington, it seems to be one of the few bipartisan issues. Correct. Democrats and Republicans are fully supporting the Biden administration, which was basically following the Trump administration mm -hmm. on ramping up this economic warfare against China. Just to put this in the Australian context, Alice, we've had a great debate in this country over several years. And the likes of Professor Hugh White from the Australian National University, he's not alone, but he says the US is set to withdraw from the region, that the US is not serious about containing China, and that Australia will find itself strategically isolated in the region. What does President Biden's technological decoupling tell you about Washington's attitudes about China in 2022? Yeah, it's interesting. I would say former President Trump really of the US really uh, achieved what former President Obama may have failed to achieve, which is the pivot to Asia. And I think it has focused minds amongst American allies, including Australia and Japan in the region, that uh, they need to have a multilateral cooperative framework to counter China's interests in the Indo-Pacific. And so we're seeing that with the Quad. We're also seeing that in um, more attempts uh, at uh, curbing China's technological expansion, not just on the telecommunications front, but also in investing in other countries. And in response, the CCP appears to be ramping up Chinese nationalism. How do you think Beijing's likely to react to the US agenda to isolate China's high-tech sector? I mean, the, the media coverage of it is already pretty uh, vociferous and, and the Chinese see this kind of tech war, as they describe it, to be uh, another form of U.S. containment of China. And, and you know, the, the two basically uh, heading towards some kind of a Cold War. Fundamentally, I think that the more that the U.S., but it tries to turn on the anti-China uh, policy, uh, not just on tech, uh, the more the population, that is the everyday Chinese, uh, will try to band together and support the party because it's a rally around the flag kind of uh, mentality. And let's remember, China controls about 80% of all the world's rare earths that mm -hmm. go into electric car batteries. So they have a bit of leverage here. Correct. I mean, it's not an unequal, uneven relationship. Uh, the US dominates on semiconductors and is already applying pressure. The Chinese dominate in rare earths uh, production and supply. And, and that also powers actually the semiconductors themselves, uh, as well as other electronics. So the, the two countries, are, are, you know, could potentially use ver two very dangerous weapons against each other. And talking about semiconductors, China, uh, sorry, Taiwan is unquestionably the world's largest maker of what high-end chips. So I suppose the question here is, could the tech war prompt Xi to accelerate his timetable for China's takeover of the vibrant island democracy? Uh, look, I, there's a lot of discussion about this. Uh, I, I fundamentally think that the Chinese government realizes that even if it were to take Taiwan, there would be some kind of plan put in place by the, either by the Taiwanese or Americans to make sure that they don't get those fab fabs, mm. those plants that basically produce most of the cutting edge semiconductors in the world today. And so any kind of strategic gamble on that front, I think, will be the product of you know sustained economic decline, potentially falling into some kind of financial crisis, continued deterioration of relations with the US and she ending, uh, you know, reaching the, towards the end of his life, taking that strategic gamble is going to be big, but it's it's not inconceivable. I just don't think that it will be sparked by the semiconductor uh, curbs that the US have Yeah, this is really the end of an era. I mean, I remember uh, at university in the early 1990s, globalisation was all the rage. You were born, I think, in the early to mid-1990s, mm -hmm. sorry to embarrass you, but just to put this in context, yeah. you've grown up, you're a creature of globalisation. Yeah. Um, but we've got this full-blown economic war that threatens to unravel decades of 
economic integration between China and America as the strategic competition between the two great powers intensifies, from what we can tell, how bad do you think this tech war will get? I think that it continues to deteriorate. The relations between the US and China on, on the tech front we will see potentially more unfavorable policies from China vis-a-vis uh, American companies within China uh, in response to this. Regardless of what happens in politics in the US, it's so baked in the cake, this anti-China yep. stance, that I think it just increases. And how does it affect countries like Australia? Well, I mean, the Australians are on the American side and then they're also part of the Five Eyes network of countries that includes Canada uh, and Australia and the US and the UK um, and New Zealand. And I think that there's going to be more collaboration amongst those countries and other like-minded partners in the region uh, to make sure that Chinese technological expansion doesn't uh, get in the way of liberal democracies and, and, and interests of those stakeholders in the region. What about the EU? Where do they stand? Yeah, the Europeans, as you probably know, with uh, French President Emmanuel Macron, they have this uh, blueprint for what they call strategic autonomy. And I would say the fact of the matter is on the hardware front, it's very hard to see uh, the Europeans have an independent policy just because so much of their own semiconductor uh, capabilities have US origin. And so we're seeing that right, that hard reality right now, uh, whereby Europeans have to abide by American regulations to sanction um, exports to China. Secondly, I would say there's probably more move uh, room for strategic autonomy on the data front, the software front, that is. So the Europeans will try to find ways uh, to not only block uh, Chinese companies, but also American companies as they try to build their own EU tech system. So much for Thomas Friedman's The World is Flat thesis. My guest is Alice Hahn. Finally, Alice, you're in your late 20s, as I mentioned before. You grew up and you went to school in Sydney. You graduated in history and economics from Harvard University. You hold a master's in East Asian studies at Stanford. You're fluent in Mandarin, Chinese, French and German. And now you work at Green Mantle. This is an advisory US group, which means you work directly, and you mentioned this earlier, for the acclaimed historian Neil Ferguson. Tell us about the second edition of the Kissinger biography, which you're helping research. Yeah, I I had the great fortune of uh, working closely with Neil on this, and uh, it's a real tour de force. He's an amazing academic and historian. Uh, And and researching that, you realise how, uh, firstly, amazing it was that Kissinger and Nixon uh, went to China and opened China fifty quote, years ago. Fifty this year. years ago this yep. year, and and secondly, how needed uh, a figure like Kissinger and Kissingerian diplomacy uh, is today. Um, I say this because um, you know Kissinger, especially in his approach to China, understood that. Uh, I mean, I'm going to quote him. He understood that equilibrium was accepting the legitimacy of sometimes opposing values. I think there is a real need, and and, and you see that when you study the history of Kissinger in that era of the Cold War, that that is the period of Cold War Dayton. There is a need to continue to negotiate and have channels of communication, even with regimes that you disagree with, because the alternative to that, and he knew this from his own childhood, is is massive war and conflict. Yes, but I mean, we've had 50 years of uh, integration there mm-hmm. with China. China's been engaged with the world, but some scholars such as John Mearsheimer, past guest on this program, 
they say we've just been feeding the beast and we've been creating a Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. Well, my own view is that that was negligence on the part of the West. You know, they had this, as you know, with Bob Zelik, this responsible stakeholder model, the idea that if you kept opening um, with China, that uh, China would liberalize. That was now we look back a very uh, spurious and wrong view of things. Uh, but that doesn't mean you throw the baby out with the bathwater and, and completely end talks and diplomacy. I think that ultimately the, the smartest thing to do is, is you know, again, to borrow a term in the Reagan era is, is trust but verify. And that worked with the Soviets. Yeah. And Kissinger, we should stress, is 99 years of age, 99. Mm -hmm. And as he showed with his recent exchange with uh, the former Prime Minister, Kevin on China policy. He remains intellectually sharp and sound. And Kissinger is full of great quotes. This is my favourite one, Alice. Quote, no one will ever win the battle of the sexes. After all, there's too much fraternising with the enemy. <laughs> He's filled with money quotes. <laughs> Alice, lovely to be with you on ABC Radio. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks. That was Alice Hahn, Director of China Research at Greenmantle, a US-based advisory group. She's in Australia as a scholar-in-residence at the Centre for Independent Studies, which I head. Up next, a preview of the Malaysian elections. Well, Dr. Mahathir, do you remember him? Prime Minister of Malaysia from 1981 to 2003. And he made a stunning political comeback in 2018 to become PM again. It's extraordinary, wasn't it? His reformist alliance defeated then incumbent Najib Razak and the ruling Unmo Party, which of course had dominated Malaysian politics since independence. It was the first democratic handover of power in about five decades. Now, Mahadia, ponder this, <laughs> he held the Guinness Book of Records for being the world's oldest current prime minister at 93. Oh, fascinating. Now, Mahadia's government collapsed in less than two years, but he's back now, 97 years of age. Fancy that. He's offering to be prime minister a third time as Malaysia gets set for its elections on November 19, and this is the country's 23rd election, let's welcome back to the program Bridget Welsh. She's one of the West's most seasoned observers of Malaysian politics. Bridget is Honorary Research Associate with the University of Nottingham Asia Research Centre that's based in Kuala Lumpur. Hi there, Bridget. Welcome back to the program. Great to be here. Now, Dr Mahadir at 97, could he really become Malaysia's Prime Minister again? No, I think his time has passed. Uh, he was given a second chance and he bungled it. So I think right now his main issue will be whether or not he wins the seat. Uh, and But his party will unlikely have any numbers that will be really significant for him to be in the game for to become prime minister. Okay, so you think his chances to win a third time are extremely slim, but several media outlets have reported Mahathir saying he is willing to take up the mantle of prime minister once more if there's not uh, an outright victory between the two major parties, plausible? 
I think uh, it's plausible that Mahathir offers many things, but I think whether or not he's going to be, those offers will be taken up, uh, I think are highly unlikely. There are a lot more contenders. Uh, there are multiple leaders saying already they want to be prime ministers. So I think there's a, there's a lot of people in the game. Um, but I do think what's most interesting about this election is that it's not clear who will become Malaysia's prime mm-hmm. minister because of the, the competitiveness on the ground. Uh, I think but of that, it's clearly probably most likely not going to be Mahathir Mohamed. Okay, now his resignation in 2020, I mean, he's he was only in power for less than two years. But since then, as I think we've discussed since, Bridget, Malaysia has been racked by instability. Just remind us, why did Mahathir's government collapse within two years? Well, I think there are two different uh, perspectives of this. There were, there's been, you know, four leaders in four years in Malaysia, and uh, we've had three governments since the two last general election um, in 2018. I think to appreciate this, the real main source of instability has been UMNO. They brought down three of these governments, uh, in part by using race speech and creating divisions within a very ideologically divided coalition of which Mahathir was leading. Uh, And then they also resisted the reforms that created a lot of uh, traction problems for the government that was elected in 2018. Uh, I think, you know, that particular coalition had very uh, different ideological spectrums. And I think UMNO was very uh, cunning in being able to use those differences and to undercut the government and to create distrust. But I think the other reason had to do with the coalition itself. And Mahathir, you know, was not willing to give up power to Anwar Ibrahim. And the personality conflict of, that they've had going on for decades, you know, came to the fore. And that ultimately ca- contributed to a split in that coalition. And then defectors left and formed a new government. Uh, so I think that, you know, Mahathir himself is responsible, as well as the, the underlying forces that were actually helping to destabilize that government. And we should stress that the collapse of Mahathir's government just paved the way for the corruption-tainted uh, Unmo party uh, to return to power. You mentioned Anwar Ibrahim. Now, many Australians would be well aware of the role that he played during the Asian financial crisis uh, back in the late 1990s. He led the Reformasi era and he was Mahathir's deputy back then. And Mahathir, I think, jailed him in the late 1990s for sodomy, I think. He's now 75 years of age. What's his role in this election? Well, it's interesting. You know, he is leading the opposition going into this election. Uh, the election is now, you know, it's comprised of three major coalitions instead of two. Uh, and But Anwar leads the more progressive coalition. Uh, and uh, he does so, you know, without um, uh, Mahathir being part of that coalition, which was the case in, two, in 2018. He is still has the reformasi issues as, as the main key agenda. Uh, the same issues that were uh, of corruption and others of 1999 mm. are still still there. He's been jailed twice since then, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. but now he's he's leading leading the more progressive forces for uh, f- in this particular polls. So is this a do or die election for Ibrahim? Definitely. Anwar, this will be Anwar's final election. He's only 75. Mahadi is 97. Well, I think uh, I think it's a little bit different in the sense that there's already been pressures for him to step down. His his coalition did not do well in the run up of state elections coming in. There are new younger leaders. Uh, I think uh, you know the electorate has also changed. A third of the electorate have been uh, are voters under the ages of 35. And what we see is that you know there there are new leaders within his coalition ready to take over the mantle. So I think that you know there's a clear recognition that this is his last election. 
he either makes it or he doesn't uh, in that context. Meanwhile, Prime Minister or former Prime Minister Najib Razak, Mahathir, of course, ousted him from office in 2018. He's now in jail. That's a historic moment for Malaysia. But what I find intriguing, Bridget, is uh, Unmo, his old party, they've called for Najib to be pardoned and released. Now, to what extent is that position popular with uh, ordinary Malaysians? Well, you know, it was a phenomenal day in August when Najib was was actually uh, jailed. I think most people didn't believe that this was happening. It had been going on for almost four is cases for three and a half years. I think it was pretty clear Najib didn't believe it as well when he was was imprisoned. Um, and many people continue to to not believe that he's in prison and wanting to see him in his prison outfit. <laughs> um, I think uh, it was a test of the accountability, and I think that uh, the Malaysia's court system deserves a lot of credit for uh, this very long process of multiple courts uh, being able to uphold this particular sentence. But the issue of his pardon and his release is an issue in the campaign. Uh, Alvino has made it very clear that they will request a pardon and uh, I think what is interesting is that uh, the person who's leading UMNO, which is a, uh, one of Najib's protégés, is a man called Zahid Hamidi. Uh, he has openly said that, you know, that this is uh, the cases and, and and having people released from their political corruption cases uh, is actually part of the part of the goals for that party. Um, and so it is very clear that the issues of rule or law and whether or not it will be upheld are, are on the cards for voters here in Malaysia. Okay, now. Now, you and I have talked about this in the past, but just remind our listeners about Najib's role in the 1MDB corruption scandal. This is the reason why he's in jail. Bridget. Well, the 1MDB scandal is a $10 billion scandal that involves, uh, you know, multiple funds across the world in terms of, uh, uh, you know, the financial companies and financial uh, holdings, uh, of which uh, there are issues involved in terms of corruption, abuses of power, and others. That What he was tried on was only a small part of it. There are still two, uh, there's still a, a multiple court, court cases that Najib still has to face. This is just a, 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 one of the most serious crises from a of the global economy because it was the largest kleptocracy scandal in the world. And Malaysians are going to have to be paying the, the debt and the problems of this for at least another two decades. Do you think that these new voters you mentioned earlier, these young voters, they may vote against UNMO on November 19 because they see it as a, you know, a corruption-tainted uh, party that's dominated Malaysian politics for so long? I mean, will the young people vote overwhelmingly against this party? Well, I think, you know, what we see in the pattern is young voters are actually, you know, very, they're split. So first of all, there are more young voters in this election than ever before, because the voting age has been moved from 20 to uh, 21 down to 18. And the other thing is, is that voters have automatically been put on the, the registration list, which was not the case in the past. So now before you had to register, now you're automatically registered. So what that has meant that there's almost 7 million new voters, and most of these are in their 20s. About 17% of the electorate are just first-time voters alone. Uh, and when we're looking at very large numbers, uh, what we see from the data is that these young voters are split uh, evenly. There's three coalitions. So some of them are voting for another coalition, which is kind of a, a another conservative coalition, but not UMNO. And I think well, what the first question, of course, is whether or not they're going to come out to vote. Uh, and many of the young people uh, ha- are not as engaged. Uh, um, and then, of course, h- how they'll split the votes. Uh, 
I think that, you know, when you have contests where at least 30 to 40 percent of the electorate in a particular constituency are younger, are these voters under 30, it makes for high levels of uncertainty. We've seen already that most of the there's a lot of undecided undecided voters in this election, and most of those are young. And what about the ethnic uh, uh, voting breakdown here? I mean, obviously, a large percentage of uh, Malaysians are Malay, and then there's the ethnic Chinese and then Indians. How do they generally vote in these kind of elections, uh, Bridget? So we have two different sets of things. On the peninsula, you know, we see that the non-Malays traditionally have voted for uh, more progressive forces, which is led by Anwar Ibrahim and the Harapan coalition. So, so Chinese and Indians primarily. <laughs> yes, although the Indians have become increasingly split because the COVID crisis has really created a lot of economic vulnerabilities. And we can see that some campaigns use resources and, and we can see that has really impacted a shift in Indian voters. Malay community is very divided. And this is one of the key dynamics that's happening in this election is it's a competition for the Malay votes. We have multiple coalitions, two progressive, uh, two conservative coalitions trying to win them. One of those being Amno, and the other one led by one of the one of the prime ministers since 2020, Muhyiddin um, uh, Yassin, uh, as well as he's joined up with the Islamist Party. So we have more competition as well as Harapan. It's more competition for that Malay vote. Uh, and I think what will be important from a perspective of Harapan is how much of the Malay vote they will get, which will determine whether or not they win those numbers. Amno, of course, also expects that they will win the majority of that, a plurality of the Malay vote, and that will also determine their numbers. But the other side of the equation, which has become very important because this is a, you know, it's a very competitive election, is what's happening in Borneo. Uh, and here you have two many regional coalitions. The coalition that is dominant in Sarawak, but in, in Sabah, voting is very uh, fragmented. You have many different fa- f- factors. So it all is going to depend on how what the alliance relationships are going to play for the overall numbers to who will get the majority. So does all this mean that UNMO is still widely tipped to retain power? It's very uncertain at this point. It's looking like it might be a hung parliament. The election's not going to happen until November 19th, and there's a lot of parties that are trying to get to the finishing line. That was Bridget Welsh from the University of Nottingham Asia Research Centre based in Kuala Lumpur. Well, finally, allow me to pay tribute to Peter Reith, who died this past week at 72, a former deputy leader of the Liberal Party who served in a number of ministries, including employment and workplace relations, small business and defence. He represented the electorate of Flinders, that's in Melbourne's Mornington Peninsula. That was from the early to mid-80s until his retirement in 2001. Now, Reith, in my judgment, was among the most important cabinet ministers in modern political history. During his five-year tenure as Workplace Relations Minister, this would have been from early 96 to 2000, Reith had shown courage and principle. And nothing better demonstrated this than Reith's role in the waterfront dispute of 1998. Chris Corrigan and Peter Reith was going to have all this over in two or three days. They're going to come in with their paramilitary imports from New Zealand and around the world and the other states. My attitude to Australian warfies is that they could be as good as warfies anywhere else. Everybody in! Come on, fellas! Everybody in! We've got generations of warfies on this wharf. Who are you? You're nothing. 
and on average they're getting what you know 85 to a hundred thousand dollars a year many of them working less than 30 hours a week they're linking arms they're holding tight like a rugby scrum the police are unlocking their arms and physically pulling them from the picket line now for decades the nation had to put up with the maritime union of australia the nation had two percent of world trade but 25% of dock disputations. And get this, the wharfies were getting paid 50% more than lots of other workers, especially when compared with police, nurses and other shift workers. But all this changed when Patrick Stevedores took on the MUA, it locked out its workforce of about 1,400 and replaced it with non-union workers. The result was a bitter and protracted dispute. But... Productivity boomed. Crane rates quickly met the government benchmark, 25 lifts an hour, up from 17 in 1997. The Australian waterfront was never the same again. Now, John Howard was Prime Minister at the time, and to mark the 20th anniversary of the waterfront dispute in 2018, this is what he told me about Peter Reith's heroic role. Well, Reith, in my view, was quite magnificent in this dispute. He was subjected to a lot of abuse. There were threats made against him and members of his family. I think you say in your memoirs that the AFP sources had told you the violence of the demonstrations against Reith was far worse than directed against you yeah. or anyone else in your government yeah, during your 12 no, years in power. Up until that time. He, he received death threats, didn't he? Uh, uh, yeah, he had all sorts of <laughs> threats. Now, I'm not, you know, not fingering particular figures sure. in the union movement for that, but it could have been anybody, but... It, it was a very tough time for Peter. He kept his nerve and uh, I supported him very strongly and it's a great tribute to his courage and his determination and uh, the way in which he stuck to his guns that we have achieved the outcomes and maintained those out- outcomes to this day. So Patrick could never have done this without Reith's support? No, I don't believe so. Definitely not. Indeed, it's unlikely Patrick could have followed its reform push without Reith's clear public support, his workplace agreements of 1996 and his strengthening of legal prohibitions against secondary boycotts. Now, Peter Reith was a Liberal partisan, but he came from a generation that cared about sound policy, not just winning elections. His influence sprang from the power of his ideas and from the sincerity and enthusiasm with which he spread them. Vale. Peter Reith. Well, that's it for the show. And just a reminder that if you want to listen to any of this episode or to past episodes, just go to the ABC Listen app and search for the Between the Lines podcast, which you can download for free. I'm Tom Switzer. Until next time, bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.